you, brother. Man, church, it's so good to be with you all today um, on a cold Chicago day. Cold. It's the kind of cold that when you breathe, you feel it in your soul. And so I hope that your hearts are warmed, uh, having been with us today so far. Uh, worship team, as always, we're so grateful for your ministry to us, man. Um, we continue on today to dive into the book of Romans. And I want to pray as we start out once more. I know Pastor Jeremy prayed, but I want to pray just again. Um, not because his prayer wasn't good enough, but uh, I just really need God's help. So <laughs> let's pray. Father, we, we do come and we thank you, Lord, just for uh, your goodness. And I, I just do ask that your spirit would empower me and fill me. Lord, just as Pastor Jeremy was saying, we know that all of us come with different circumstances, things in our hearts, and, and God, only your spirit can speak to our hearts where we're at. And so, God, I pray for your help that I would be able to be your messenger. May the cross of Jesus be lifted high, oh God. Be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, I think about a passage in the book of Acts where there was a man, a Philippian jailer, who sees the Apostle Paul, and asks him this question. He says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? We use the idea of like, man, that saved me. We use those terms a lot in our regular vocabulary. And people might say, hey, this thing saved my life. And sometimes that might refer to a diet or nutrition plan. Like, that thing saved my life, quite literally. Sometimes it could be a surgical procedure that saved somebody's life. Or a youth intervention program. Someone might say, man, when I was 18, this program saved my life. Some people might say it was a courageous first responder who saved my life. Sometimes we might even look at a crisis and say, man, if I didn't go through that, it was hard, but that saved my life. You guys familiar with these? What these all have in common is uh, something that's external to them saving their physical lives. But with each of these comments, there is an important distinction that we have to understand. Those things can save someone's physical life, but they are powerless to save someone's spiritual life. You guys with me? So when the jailer comes to Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? Paul doesn't pull out a sheet of paper with the phone number and says, hey, call this friend of mine. He's a guy, he's a great doctor. He doesn't give them the address to an intervention program. He doesn't give them a plan of attack. While those things are all good, no doubt, they can't save us from something deeper within. You know, today as I prepared the message, it is a passage where we see with beautiful clarity God's plan for saving people. Saving us from something far deeper than just the external needs we might have. And we all have them. You know, Montel Jordan said, this is how he does it on Friday nights on the west side. Today, I'm going to tell you how God does it every day and every night on all sides to save people. Today, we're going to talk about how God is able to redeem us no matter how far we are. And if you are a child of God today, I want us to begin to, or to again marvel at what God has done for us in saving us from our sins. You see, faith in Jesus is the only way 
to get right with God. That, that's the plainest truth that we affirm. Faith in Jesus is the right way to get right with God. And put it together, faith in Jesus is the right way and the only way to get right with God. And so today we're going to talk about how the Apostle Paul put that on display for the church to see. And I want you to join me in the book of Romans chapter 9. We continue on in our series, Doctrine That Dances, church. And we're going to see how this beautiful truth of God's salvation is one that moves us to worship, to praise, and to tell others. So if you can, wherever you're at, would you stand to your feet as I read Romans 9, verse 30, to chapter 10, verse 13. This is what the Word tells us. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does, not, who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, can you say everyone? Everyone. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. You may be seated, church. As we come to the book of Romans, we talked about last week, it is this beautiful unpacking of God's plan to save people. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 are a section of passages that lay out God's plans for the Jewish people. We saw last week that the Apostle Paul was struggling in his heart because he is a Jewish man and he looks at his fellow Jewish people and realizes that by and large they have rejected Jesus. And in his heart it creates angst for him. But then he's conflicted 
He's like, man, if, if the Jews are God's chosen people, why have they rejected God? Has God failed to save? And we saw last week that the failure is not on God's part, but on the people's parts. They fail to believe. We also saw, though, that God is a God who has a plan. He's a God who has chosen people to be his own. And in that beautiful tension, God is sovereign over our lives and he holds us responsible for our actions and choices. And when we look at that, we might wonder, like, God, how can those things be? And Paul says, look, these things are true. Will we trust God with what we do know and trust him with what we don't? And so that's how the book of Romans chapter 9 was at. But there's this conflicting of his soul. Because at the same time, while God's chosen people rejected him, there's another group of people who actually believed in Jesus. And those are called Gentiles. Those are non-Jewish people. If you are not Jewish by ethnicity, you are a Gentile. And so when Paul is here writing Romans chapter 9, verses 30 and following, he's asking the question, so what do we make of this? What do we make of the fact that God's people have rejected him, but others have received him? Well, he says here in verse 30, what shall we say then? He says, this is what the truth is. That Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. In short, what Paul is saying is this. God's chosen people, Israel, have failed to believe in Jesus because they had their faith somewhere else. They had their faith ultimately in their ability to follow God's laws. And they thought that that's what would get them right with God. In short, they believed that salvation came through doing good works. They thought that the better they could be, the closer with God they could become. They pursued this righteousness, he says in verse 30. See, righteousness, the righteousness of God is right standing with God. It is to be in right relationship with God. And the Bible teaches with crystal clear words that from our birth we are not right with God. That there is a separation between us and God. And we're reminded here that forgiveness has always come through faith. It has never come through good works. See, faith in Jesus is the right way and the only way to get right with God. We all need to hear this because all of us have ingrained within us this desire to be people who earn what we get. I mean, we, we, we love the idea in our heart of hearts to be people who get right with God because we did something to get there. And the Jewish people fell into this trap. Because early in, in this chap- chapter, we, we see that to them, God gave his word. To them, God gave promises. To them were the great people of the faith, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great kings of Israel, and all the peoples in the past, the prophets. Those were Jews, and, and the Jewish people began to trust in things outside of faith. But then it says here in verse 30, that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have actually attained it. That people 
who didn't try to live by God's law to get right with God, actually got right with God. And it's like, yo, how did that happen? You mean they didn't do anything to get right with God? And Paul's like, well, kind of. They surely did not do it by good works. Good works become a stumbling stone. And for the Jewish people, they looked at Jesus and they despised him. It says here that in verse 33, quoting the Old Testament, he became a stone of stumbling. They did not want to believe that salvation could come through believing in him. And so now there was a problem for them. They rejected Jesus, and by doing so, they rejected the only way to be saved from their sin. This is the problem at hand. Forgiveness has always come through faith, Paul emphasizes. But then there's more, he says here in, verse, in chapter 10, verses 1 and following. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You see, the problem that we have to understand is that all of us need to be saved. Now, you might hear in Christian circles in a church like, I got saved on such and such a day. Or, you need to get saved. Right? We, we use this term, but I don't know if we all understand what we're referring to being saved from. Now, we might say, Jesus Christ died on the cross to save me from my sin. But what do we mean by that? What about my sin did he save me from? See, Paul understands something that you and I must understand. That the penalty for our sin is death. And so what we need to be saved from is what sin has brought to us. It has brought death. But death is not just something that just shows up. Death is the consequence of our rebellion. Death is an expression of of God's wrath upon peoples who reject him. And so we say, when we say that we need to be saved, ultimately what we're saying is we need to be saved from God's wrath toward us. I don't know if y'all hearing me here. See, see, we, 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 think, we think, oh, you know, God, God wants, wants to save us. He does, but God also is a just God. And he has wrath towards sin. Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness. And so God will judge our rebellion. There is wrath directed toward us. There was wrath directed toward the Jews who rejected Jesus. And to all of us who do that. And we need to be saved. And though the problem is, that when we think we can get right with God and become saved from his wrath by the works we do, we become blind to the very need for faith. And this church is a dangerous place to be. In fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 2, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Like, watch that. He said they are so zealous to serve God, but their zealous, their zeal lacks knowledge. It is ignorant. Furthermore, he says this, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So they insisted on trying to be saved from their sin and the consequence of their sin by being a good person. But their ignorance and their zeal created a dangerous combination. 
Now, we might have seen people, or maybe even consider ourselves at times, where we've been very zealous, but super ignorant of our, what we're zealous about. Like, like, all of us have that impulse to be real passionate about things, but we might find ourselves to be passionate about things we actually ultimately don't really know. And that's what was happening, and that's what happens to all who want to earn their way into heaven. There is zeal to be good, but ignorance of the fact that good won't get you to God. See, ignorance and zeal is a dangerous combination, like a one-two punch from that heavyweight boxer. It's a dangerous combination like coffee and Thai food. Trust me. It's a, it's a dangerous combination that will wreak havoc in your soul. It tells you that faith is not the right way, but that you and your actions. But what Paul says in verse 4 is that Jesus is the end of the law. Like Jesus put away the law's requirements so that we can be right with God based on what we believe. Now let me unpack that for you a little bit more. Because he goes on in verse 5. I'm going to read this, this verse for you, and I'm going to tell you why this is so important. Paul says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is the problem with trying to get right with God by being a good person. The problem is this. God has a law, and if we obey it perfectly, then sure, we can be saved by it. But the problem with the law is we can't do that. We, we cannot be perfect people. So the problem with relying on good works is that it doesn't work. Let me say that again. The problem with good works is it doesn't work. Because the one moment you fail, you have fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And so Paul, uh, Moses said, he, he says, if, if you, when Paul quotes him here, the person who follows the commandments must live by them. So now you have submitted to a yoke and burden that you cannot carry. You are living by a standard that you don't have the power to live by. You're now someone who is carrying the weight. And the law is a bit of smoke and mirrors. You've seen those magicians, those, those people who, who know how to, to fool you with a trick of the hand or using mirrors and smoke. I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable thing because what they do is they use one idea, one image to distract you while they're doing something else on the side. I mean, it's, it's, it's really remarkable because sometimes they're standing right in front of you and with a little sleight of hand, they might say something to kind of just get you a little distracted from the reality of what's going by. And so this idea that they present to you is actually not true. See, the law promises to save you if you follow it perfectly, and that's true. But the smoke and mirrors is that our failure to understand, we just can't do it. We can't do it. So the problem with good works is that it doesn't work. I want this to be a liberating message for, for us here today. First of all, I want to speak to those who are here present or those who are watching online. 
I need you to know that you can't get right with God by your own actions. And let that be freedom for you. We've all have tried to be better and change our behavior. But so much of what we try to do continues to fall flat on our face because there's something inside of us called sin. It's a sin nature that we're born with that causes us to be unable to attain God's standard. We need a rescue. We need something outside of us, something our good works cannot accomplish. And for those of you who are children of God today, and you might know that Jesus is the right way and the only way to get right with God, you know that, but through your life and your actions, you live a different way. Maybe you feel like you've got to earn your Heavenly Father's love. And so when you don't read your Bible on a particular day, you wonder if God is upset with you. Or when you trip up over that temptation again and you wonder if God is finished with you. And might, you might know theologically that that's not the case, but through your lifestyle, you are living a life by good works. And that is a yoke you cannot carry. You were saved by faith to live by faith. And that life of faith produces good works, but the good works does not get you saved. Good works is a problem because it doesn't work. But the beautiful thing here is Paul's talking about the Jewish people and he's he's burdened by the fact that they've rejected the one that could save them. He also acknowledges, though, that there is salvation that is possible because there in verse six, he says, but the righteousness that is based on faith, the way to get right with God by faith says this. Do not say in your heart you will ascend to heaven. Like, you can't get to heaven to pull Jesus down. You can't go into the depths of the earth to pull him up when he, when he was died in, the, died in the grave. But what does it tell us in verse 8? That the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. See, what Paul is saying here is good works makes, makes salvation feel so far away. It's like you can work so hard and do your best and you look up and you're like, man, I feel like I haven't made any progress. But when we switch perspective from trying to do better and put our perspective on faith, we realize that salvation by faith reveals the closeness of God's salvation. Like God is actually closer than you realize, but when we're trying to earn him, he felt so far. But when we finally said, God, I can't earn you, God's like, I've been right here. How close? Paul says this in verse 8. The word is near you. It's so close. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. Because all you must do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart to be saved. That's verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth, That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will. You will. You what? You what? You will be saved. Like like the good news of Jesus is so much better than the promise of following the law to be saved. Where that's a yoke we cannot carry. Salvation by faith. Is something God offers right there to us. 
What I love about the tensions that Paul has here is we saw last week's sermon, we, and we, we stepped into that tension of God is sovereign. He elects people to himself. He predestines some to, to be saved. We, we saw the word tell us that. And we saw Paul saying, yeah, but he holds us responsible. But in the same breath, he tells us that God has chosen. And then he tells us, so therefore, choose God. Like, like confess him. And he holds this divine sovereignty and our human responsibility in glorious tension. And he's not concerned about trying to, uh, trying to explain all that. Yeah, we try to understand. But at the end of the day, we are saved when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Let, let's talk about that statement. Because if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, this is the way to get right with God today. This is the way for you to be adopted into God's family today. This is the way for you to be forgiven by God Almighty and have the sure hope of spending eternal life with him. He says what you must do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To confess something is to admit it. It's to concede that something is factual or true. In a court of law, to confess your crime is to admit that you did it. In romance, confession of love admits you've been smitten. In sports, confession that Jordan is the goat is to admit the obvious, right? Confession is to concede to a truth. What is the truth that Paul says we must admit or acknowledge or concede? Well, we must confess that Jesus is Lord. To be Lord is to be position of authority, and God's lordship is universal. So what Paul is saying is, to be saved from your sin, you must confess that Jesus is Lord. Lord over your life, Lord over creation, Lord over your failures, Lord over your past, Lord over your future. He is Lord over all of who you are. But you got to concede to that fact. And concede, he says, with your mouth. It is a public confession. Look, church, we, we cannot think that my faith is just between me and God. Now, surely it is between you and God. But our faith is not just private. As we've said before, faith must be cultivated privately and demonstrated publicly. See, Paul says we got to confess with our mouth. It is an outward acknowledgement. It is a public affirmation that Jesus is my Lord. We can't treat our faith like a bad habit hoping people don't find out about it. We can't treat our faith as something that people can get ideas about or get a vibe that we believe. But we got to confess that. It is a declaration that our white flag has been raised and we say, God, I surrender. That Jesus is Lord. But there's another part of salvation by faith. It is confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but it's also, he says, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. 
You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he took our sin upon him. And he died on that cross and was buried in the grave and was there for three days from Friday to Saturday to Sunday. And on Sunday morning, he was raised from the dead. Every child of God must believe that to be true. The entirety of the Christian faith hinges on the fact that the tomb is empty. And so we are called to believe that. To believe is more than just intellectual assent, but it is a full trusting in this fact. Do you believe that the tomb is empty, church? Do you believe that you believe that the tomb is empty? Paul says, believe it in your heart. See, in ancient Near Eastern culture, the heart is the seat of your affections and your intellect and your will. It is the central aspect of who you are. It represents the you. And Paul's saying you must believe it in the depths of your soul that the tomb is empty. He says that God raised him from the dead. I find that to be a remarkable statement. Because a lot of times when Paul says to believe that God raised him from the dead, he's referring to God the Father. That's oftentimes the way he says it. In fact, in Galatians 1, 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It was the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. And we must believe that, church. But we're also told in Romans 8, 11, as we saw earlier in this series, it says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. It was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, we're told. So was it the Father or was it the Spirit? Well, there's actually more. Because in John 10, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, Jesus says, and I have authority to take it up again. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. No one takes my life. No one took my life. I gave my life. I gave my life to a cross, and I gave my life to the tomb, but I have the authority to come back up out of the tomb. So we're told in Scripture that, yes, it was the Father who raised Jesus from the dead, that yes, it was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And that yes, it was Jesus who raised Jesus from the dead. And so we're called to believe in your heart that God, the triune God, raised him from the dead. This is the way to get right with God. And how much better is this than good works, church? How much better is it to know that I can wake up tomorrow morning and know that my salvation, my being saved from the wrath of God and the penalty of my sin is assured based on nothing I've done, but on everything that God has done. How liberating is that? How liberating is it to know that when I fail and I fail, church, that when you fail and I know you fail, you're still saved. How liberating is it to know that no matter how rough things get, there is a God who has his stamp on your life when you've put your faith in Jesus. 
So if you've never done that, man, church, we, we want you to do that today. To confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Because if you do that, what's the promise that Paul tells us there? What does he tell us there, church, in verse 10? In verse 9, at the end of verse 9, you will be saved. That confession and that belief of what brings you salvation. Well, who is this salvation offered? Because this conversation began with Paul saying, man, the Jewish people have failed. They've, they've turned away from God. And then there's these Gentile people who actually are coming to Jesus, although they don't know about the law. They don't know about the patriarch. They're just learning about this, but they're getting saved. Well, who is this offered? Look what it says in verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that means to be declared right before God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Like everyone, 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 everyone. And just in case you don't understand what everyone means, Paul says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches. And is there a greater riches than the gospel on all who call on him? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, uh, every so often um, I'll see a, a, a fitted baseball cap, and I might say on it, one size fits most. And it's got like an elastic to it. But I always laugh at that because I'm like, man, there's always an exception, isn't there? One size fits most. Somebody's out there got a head too big, or someone out there got a head too small. And just to protect their brand, they're like, one size fits most. If it don't fit you, we didn't advertise that it would. (laughs) See, the problem with sin is that one size actually fits all. All of us fall short of God's glory. All of us have sinned. No matter how big the crime or how small the lie, one size of our sin fits all of us, and by it we are all condemned. Well, here's the beautiful thing, is that the cross of Jesus is not a one-size-fits-most either. Because the cross of Jesus is a one-size-fits-all. It is a cross that can cover all sins. There is no sin too big for the cross, and there is no sin too small for the cross. There is no sin too big for God, and there is no sin too small for God. See, our God has come to save people from their sins and though our sin has cursed us and separated us and made us objects of God's wrath apart from Jesus God came down stepped in where our good works could not save us he stepped in to save us from our sins and his cross covers us faith in Jesus is the right way And the only way to get right with God. This is how he does it. Every night, every day. And not just on the west side, church, but on all sides. I don't want to end this service without making this invitation to some who've never put their faith in Jesus.
Maybe today it's clicking for the first time. And you realize that you've been around the church, but you've been trying to earn God's favor. And today I want you to respond to Jesus. His Holy Spirit is always at work pulling us close. And though you may feel far, like you are watching online miles away from where I'm standing right now, or maybe you're here present feeling miles away from the truth I proclaim, God is making an invitation to you to confess with your heart, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose from the dead for you. So I'm going to pray here in a moment. And I would love for you in your heart to pray, asking for God's forgiveness confessing Jesus' death and resurrection for you. I want you to acknowledge your need for him and then to receive him as your savior and be saved. And then to those who are children of God today, man, church, don't let this gospel become dull to your ears. I marvel in it. As we pray, would you pray in your heart thanksgiving? And would you pray for those who don't know Jesus? Because this is how God saves people. In buildings, on live streams, but it's always through the cross of Jesus. So will you bow your head and your heart with me? If today you want to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, or you feel like you've never done that genuinely, and maybe, maybe you had a zeal without knowledge, you were passionate for trying to be a good person, not really recognizing that the law just condemns you and shows you how messed up you truly are. Today's that day for you to put your faith in Jesus. We pray that you would do it right now. You would pray asking God for forgiveness right now. You would acknowledge that Jesus died for your sins and that you would repent. That means to turn away, saying, God, I... I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to turn away from the the sins that I know dishonor you. And you would confess that he rose from the dead, believing it in your heart of hearts that the tomb is empty. Would you tell God that you believe that right now if you've never done that? Say, God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me done trying to do this on my own. I'm done trying to earn my way to you. I keep falling short. And today I raise my white flag. I surrender. I believe you died for me, Jesus, to take the sin that I could not pay for myself, but you paid for it for me. I believe that you took the punishment, that God's wrath was poured on you, although I deserved it. I believe that you went to the grave, but you came out victorious after three days. I believe it. pray that and mean it in your heart in your innermost being today you have been saved from your sin and you will be saved on the last day when you stand before God and he sees you covered in Jesus' righteousness for every child of God here maybe right now you've got to just repent of trying to say you're saved by good work, by, by faith, but living by good works right now. Just tell God you're sorry. Trust Him. Trust His Spirit to work in you, to sanctify you, 
to conform me to look more like Jesus and less like the world. But let it be an outflow of your faith that does that. Oh Lord, we come today. And God, it's so foolish to think that we can climb to heaven. I think sometimes we do it, God, because we we just want to feel like we had something to do with our salvation. Sometimes we do it because we feel like we deserve that, to have to earn it because we, we just don't deserve your grace. We feel like we got, we got to almost cause ourselves to suffer because we, we've done so wrong and we just deserve to be punished and, and, and trying harder is our punishment. And Lord, it's just so backwards. Forgive us, God. Lord, I pray that today we would just marvel at your grace, receive your forgiveness and walk in that freed from these chains, freed from this yoke, freed from this burden we can't carry. So Lord, we come before you today thanking you for your salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say if you prayed to put your faith in Jesus for the first time today, please let us know. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but I, I would love for you to come let me know after service. I, I want to know. We want to know. We want to celebrate with you because you've gone from being an enemy of God to a child of God today. You've gone from being an object of wrath to an object of grace today. You're our family member now. If you're watching online and you made that profession today, Please, please message us. Use that link, the connection card link. Tell us because we want to know what God is doing. Church, we got a song to sing today because God is still in the business of rescuing, isn't he? So let's rise to our feet. Let this song be a declaration of his saving you from your sin. Let's acknowledge him, how good he is. And church, let's sing with all our might his praise. I love how that song puts it. I mean, that's exactly what God does. He rescues us. Man, go out this week with that gospel truth as the fuel that burns in your soul, church. Go out renewed by his strength. I want to give you this blessing from God's word. But now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be our glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, both now and forever. Amen and amen. God bless you, Brooke family. We look forward to seeing you all in real communities this week and back here for worship next Sunday. You are dismissed. God bless you all.